Welcome back to the Service Design Podcast. In this episode, we're speaking with Steph Hay, one of Fast Company's most creative people in 2019 and Vice President of Design at Capital One Bank. She gave a great talk on designing for trust at the Service Design Global Conference and we spoke to her shortly afterwards for this insightful interview. We're here with Steph Hay, who just gave uh, an amazing uh, keynote speech at the Service Design Conference. Maybe could you introduce yourself briefly for the audience who doesn't know you yet and talk about what your speech was about briefly? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I'm Steph Hay, um, Vice President of Design at Capital One, which is a big bank in the United States with offices in Canada and also UK. And I just got done talking about designing for trust. And sort of core of that being really committing to understanding and designing for the human emotions. Um, and for those of us in technology, that means, you know, really trying to connect with the person on the other side of the interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you uh, started off with a beautiful story about uh, Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. What does uh, Sesame Street have to do with uh, trust? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is a global brand that's been teaching kids for 50 years now starting in urban, tough urban environments around New York City and now, you know, globally around the world and in refugee zones and being able to continually create the kind of programming that really compels outcomes, requires a team that's dedicated to understanding what kids, in this case, need in order to learn and developing a trusting relationship with those kids so that those kids can learn, but also all of the influences around them, the parents, the cities, in some cases, the distributors of the content. This is an entire endeavor, and that's why I talk about Sesame Street, of social good that is based on establishing trust with human on the other side of the, in this case, television. Yeah, you showed this video of uh, James Old Jones uh, counting. I had seen this video before just for its weirdness, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you really put it into context about uh, how a lot of uh, testing had gone into getting this video uh, there. Could you go into that a little bit? Sure. It was fascinating. This very young James Earl Jones just counting to ten. And the entire segment takes a little bit more than 30 seconds because he's waiting three seconds in between each number. And this was really where Sesame Street started, counting one to 10 and also A to Z. It was numbers and alphabet. And when James Earl Jones would wait three seconds in between each number in the sequence from one to 10, kids were most likely to pay attention. And the researchers knew that the kids were learning because they would be most likely to start saying the next number in the sequence. And if you check out YouTube, early James Earl Jones, counting to 10, Sesame Street, you'll see what I'm talking about. But there were a couple things that the researchers also added to make that content more trustworthy. And they tested this rigorously. One is that in the background of that video, you'll hear cars honking. And this was part of the overall context that the 
designers were instilling into the programming itself because kids in these urban environments, they were constantly surrounded by taxis and, you know, emergency vehicles and their sirens outside. And so those kinds of background noises would show up in segments like this to more realistically mimic real life. And similarly, James Earl Jones had a relative has a relatively neutral face for the first several numbers that he says, as he's really trying to kind of establish himself as somebody to trust before he then starts introducing facial expressions and tonality changes. So in one question, one of his numbers, he phrases like a question, you know, five. And this is a prompt to the kids to then, are you going to respond to me? And he has facial expressions that start to reveal his own emotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you also talked about that the puppets in Sesame Street are actually a way of getting the trust from the children, the trust to uh, let them learn new things, mm -hmm. but that they also had to decide, like, we shouldn't have only puppets, but we should mix them with humans. What do you think we can learn in general when designing services or experiences from this, uh, from this insight? Yeah, well, this... This insight came from the child psychologists who are part of that diverse team, right? So I think one of the things that we can learn is to bring in people who have been studying the people we're trying to reach, who, who understand those people and the challenges they have and the emotions that they have, and bring those folks into the design process. So they bring just another lens at looking at the world, right, to reveal those kinds of insights early on. So these child psychologists, the reason that they introduced puppets into Sesame Street had said early research showed that kids, particularly from abused homes, would be more likely to respond to a sock on a human's hand, even that sock had a couple dots for eyes, than they were to the human that that hand was attached to, right? Um, so that kind of an insight came from the diverse team and Then, very specifically, the researchers then studied how to combine puppets with other, uh, because the puppets were representing children's consciousness. So children are not going to, you know, the intention of the design had to be complementary here. The intention of the design of Sesame Street is to help kids be able to learn. And therefore, part of Sesame Street's mission had to be get these kids who don't trust adults to better trust adults or at least teachers, right? So what are the things that, once you understand the emotional context, that you want to complement those things with so that you can start to bridge whatever gaps are there? That's why humans were introduced and kept on screen with the puppets. If we think about, for example, um, with Eno, which is our um, gender-neutral intelligent assistant that we um, launched a couple years from Capital One, if we think about Eno as an assistant for our customers, and our customers are on the go and they want to move, 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 they want to have somebody always looking out for them in the background and making sure that they've got their back, their money. Eno has to be able to proactively reach out at different times just to remind you that we're in the background, always watching, and in doing so, we kind of complement that gap that you might have if you think nobody's paying attention right now for silent, even though we are. So it's really trying to understand, like, what are the underlying emotions of the person or customer trying to design for? And how do we bridge that to an intention that is ours? We want you to know that we've got your back, just like Sesame Street wanted the kids to know that adults 
could teach. Yeah. So yeah, in the Sesame Street example, they they were talking. You were talking about a very specific group of uh, of urban kids, yeah. um, and then connecting to to their situation to generate trust. Uh, in the situation of Eno, yeah, you've got a very broad audience, of course. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about finding those elements to to gain trust to all people? Mm -hmm. Well, similarly. In the way that Sesame Street really started with one to ten and A to Z, we know that customers who are um, have a credit card with us, there is a you know there were there were two use cases that we absolutely needed to nail that were sort of our starting point, and that was checking your balance, how much money have I charged on my card, and paying it off. And so, uh, check balance and pay bill were the two that we started with, and. We, we chose those two use cases as the most universal use cases. And we also chose, through the technology, much like Sesame Street chose television, we're, we chose very specifically cell phones, but SMS. And that was an attempt to at least reach the most people in our credit card um, customers as possible, because everybody who has a credit card is, has the ability to charge on it and to pay it off. And... 97% of people in the United States, which is where we're primarily based, um, have a cell phone and text. But a subset of them actually um, download mobile apps or feel comfortable doing their banking in that way. So uh, we, we attempted through those, those two choices of the use case and the uh, starting in plain text and the SMS to reach as, as many customers as possible. Mm -hmm. And a big topic that is appearing in this conference is uh, designing for inclusion, so not leaving out uh, certain people, whereas uh, traditional service design projects, they would define some personas and define, okay, which users are we going to focus on? Mm -hmm. Is it Can I say that you didn't do that and you chose two use cases which were pretty specific, but then looked at all users and in that way tried to... A limit or, or have a design right. focus instead of from a user profile? That's right. And we also took a different slant on user profile that I think came from, you know, instead of personas, it came from, uh, again, having a diverse group of people kind of working on this. So for Eno, we had uh, folks from uh, who were journalists, folks who were anthropologists. We had UX designers. We had designers from uh, the entertainment industry who'd worked in... Um, character development for companies like Pixar and Lucasfilm. And um, so we thought more about emotional contexts and designing for the emotional contexts rather than the person. Because there's a lot of data that will automatically constrain things like, you know, what is your credit score? How much have you run up on your, when's the last time you paid? And you could spend all day long coming up with personas that Unfortunately, to you know, the, the constraints of them is that they're they're static, and people are not. You move, and how you how you interact with your bank changes depending upon the context. And so, when you're in a fraud scenario where we don't recognize a transaction on your card, and we want to make sure that it's really you, you're in a heightened emotional state, and and you're a different person. You would fit a different persona in how you are responding to the bank at that moment than when you are just transacting and paying on your bill on an auto pay in the background, not even thinking about it moving through life. So we tried to take exactly like you're talking about, a, a 
universal, what is most going to be most accessible to people approach through the channel selection and the use case selection, and then try to reach them through emotional, like an emotional spectrum of contexts rather than personas. Mm-hmm. So trying to understand this uh, as, a, as a designer, mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm curious, what, what does it look like, the design for this? So you have a, an, a chatbot that's able to mm-hmm. respond to different emotional states. How do you think about this conceptually? Do you have a framework of the different emotional states that we're looking for? And these are the responses? Is it a simple grid? Or what does that look like? You got it. You're already doing it. (laughs) You're already doing it. That's right. And for each context or each company, you know, it's going to be different. But uh, one of the ways that we think about it, which is similar to a lot of companies, is when is this more emotional and when is this more transactional? So as I talked about today, that's part of the spectrum, right? And then there's also, you know, people who are what we call foregrounding or backgrounding, like people who are regularly interacting with their bank, they sign into different profiles, they're very digitally active, you know, people who are backgrounding who we, you know, they they pay off their bill, but we don't see them very often. And that helps us understand what kind of relationship they want and understand how to design, let's say, four different potential responses depending upon those two vectors, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you also talked, and that's also something I heard already a lot during the conference uh, about the importance of diverse teams, and that it's super crucial to even within a design team have different perspectives. And I think we as uh, designers, even service designers, we're all kind of the same uh, people. Like we're very empathic, we uh, avoid conflicts, we're uh, very human, a bit humble, and. I have a feeling that uh, the the diverse team uh, thing is not really uh, present at the moment in Mm. most uh, design teams. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, this is, you know, to design for a diverse population of people, you better have diversity reflected in your design team, right? That can include, you know, product and engineering team, the, the folks who are at the table. And similar to when I was talking about Sesame Street, Musicians, child psychologists, TV producers, philanthropists. Diversity comes in lots of uh, flavors, right? And that's what's beautiful about it. And if you stick a bunch of people in a room together and you and they feel compelled, authentically compelled, that those folks are going to be most likely to come up with the kind of solution that would not happen if everybody had a homogenous way of thinking and they had the same background and the same skill set. But... Um, That's a very explicit goal that teams would have to make. We want to come at this challenge in a way that we haven't come at it before, which starts with people. It starts with brains and it starts with people, right? And so you say, I'm going to get these people. So, so for example, with Eno, the teams would always joke around because my, my main product partner is, is very analytical and I'm very emotional. And so we would be wonderful as partners working together, even though half the time we would want to like rip our own hair out because we were arguing about fundamentally very important things that we felt compelled by, but we had completely different ways of coming at it. And ultimately what would come from that are better solutions. And so if as a service design team, you want better solutions, there's absolutely no way to achieve them other than to get some people in that room who don't know what you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
the chatbot, you talked a bit about its uh, personality, the personality of Eno. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it, Eno's personality? Yeah. Is it a, it, and is Eno a he or a she? It depends on what you want Eno to be, really. It's up to your imagination, but uh, Eno's gender neutral and um, is earnest and wants more than anything, is fascinated by humans, is not human, but is fascinated by humans, and wants more than anything to help. So sometimes Eno, when um, this was some of the research that we, we learned early on, uh, when Eno fails to answer a question, um, Eno will be very specific to tell you that that failure actually helps Eno learn what works and doesn't work. So what we found is that if we're able to establish that uh, you know, early interactions between a customer and Eno prove that Eno can get that customer to the right answer, that they'll be more likely to help Eno understand Eno and train Eno when the interaction doesn't go as planned. Um, that, you know, humility and not overpromising and eagerness is really core to Eno's character because we get it wrong so much. We just get it wrong. And for all the reasons I was talking about, because people are unique. And our technology is in its infancy and in the application of machine learning to serve at the level of one, the exact kind of interaction for each unique person. But that's the promise. And Eno is very early, very young in that. So humility is everything. Yeah. What, what stuck with me, though, is that you also said uh, Eno has a sense of humor. I thought that That's was true. an interesting design choice for a chatbot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you go into that? Maybe an sure. example yeah. of, of where that, that is a benefit to have a sense of humor? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, we learned early on, and Amazon published this research and talked about it, that when they were developing their Alexa skill, they found that tell me a joke was one of the top three intents. It was like weather, joke, something else I can't remember right now, but it wasn't buy stuff, okay? And this reinforces what we've learned before, which is that people want to kick the tires of a new technology. They're interested because they, in you know, their imagination, want this thing to work and to be this amazing new assistant that they can tell their friends about and that well, they can rely on for everything. And so... Um, we early on decided it was those three things, by the way, it was bill pay, check your balance, and then jokes. We were going to script some jokes and they were all going to be very uh, sort of like bubblegum money puns. Okay. Um, and um, like where the punchline is, you know, where does Dracula, where does Dracula bank? And it's a blood bank, you know, stuff like that. Okay. Like <laughs> nobody who's really famous for comedy is telling these jokes. Okay. But, <laughs> but these are the things that Eno finds funny because Eno's young and bubblegummy and that kind of, um, you know, earnesty is really part of Eno's character. So we very specifically relegated early humor to jokes. If you're going to ask for a joke, we know we have a green light and most people don't ask for jokes, but the ones who do are more likely to have longer conversations and relationships with Eno. So people have asked Eno, what is the meaning of life? We actually have an answer now because so many people ask that. And that's not what you expect from your bank, but that's what you expect from a human who's kicking the tires of something that they don't yet know whether or not this thing is real and how they should interact with it. And so humor for us is 
relegated to jokes, but then also I would say some informality or responsiveness to the folks who are just exploring. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is that uh, a lot of banks are already designing a lot of years for trust, and you see these dark blue uh, logos um, and old men uh, bringing very formal information, <laughs> so you trust that there's smart people behind it, but now you put humor and emotions in it. Does it work for everyone or are there some people who kind of think like, oh, just be serious, it's my money? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Everyone is unique. And I think it's absolutely context specific again, right? But we take that relationship with our customers super seriously as as any company should, but we get it. You gave us your money and it's an enabler and it's a disabler of being able to move through your life. And we want to have your back and we want to be there for you. And for us, Capital One is a, is a relatively young company in the world of banking, okay? And is a very tech forward company. It's why I'm there. And one of the things that is um, always been very attractive to me and why I think our design team is able to, to really kind of stretch its wings a little bit in an environment like this is because the company appreciates being a challenger, So our founder is uh, still our CEO. It's the only CEO we've ever known. And so there's an entrepreneurial spirit um, that kind of exists throughout the company. And I don't know that that's true everywhere, Um, but it gives us license to experiment, not to take advantage of the opportunity we have here to have a healthy respect for what came before and also like utmost respect for the customer but to be more approachable and accessible because that's the opportunity for uh, for us. Yeah, you say like you, you get the space to experiment. At some point, there was also a slide um, that says it was about a game journey, that it went uh, over budget and there were some other things that you yeah. would think like in companies, alarm bells would ring and they would stop or they would intervene and yes. uh, push it in another direction. But how do you go about... Making sure that you're, as if you're, you feel that you're on the right direction. Do you prove it so that you can go over budget, or how do you manage to then still go forward with a project when maybe the numbers are not right? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think that's the uh, that's a tough question, <laughs> right? I know <laughs> it's. It's a it's an art and a science. It's a mm-hmm. it's a combination of you know, critical factors about who's leading it and what the vision is and what is the traction because you have to generate momentum. You have to show that there's something here that there's and be able to talk about it and represent that in a way that compels others to see that future vision. Mm-hmm. Like we saw Zita in her talk. You know, I'm so struck by the fact that when they first came with that idea of the Fogo Island Inn that the response they got was impractical. Basically, this is not gonna happen and we're all looking at it. It exists, right? And so how do you go from not gonna happen to three years of development to that? Every team is challenged with that. And the persistence comes more naturally when the vision is clear, when the outcome that you're trying to drive. And I personally am driven by, as you saw in the talk today, um, you know, I'm compelled by understanding the humans better 
Like technology is going to understand, help us understand the humans better and to drive change that really benefits humanity versus being stopped at the UI or at the interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, something like Eno, uh, it's going to have an emotional success. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also going to have a financial success, That's I right. presume. Yeah. How, how do you measure the two uh, different types of successes? Yeah. Are you able to put them into numbers uh, to make a business case for Eno? Yeah, the... Um Certainly, we can put things into numbers. We're a bank. <laughs> yeah, you'd hope so. <laughs> we can analyze anything. Anybody could analyze anything, right? But, like, who cares? If you're not compelled by it, it makes no difference. Nobody feels like they can get up and tell stories about it. Or the stories are just tables and tables of numbers that you have to analyze. You know, there's not a balance there. There's not a story there. So, I'm, you know, we have the I love you metric or the... the um, you know, we have this customer experience. So, you Can know, you Uber metric. go into that a little bit? What sure. is the I love you metric? Sure. Yeah. No, it, Eno has a, a bunch of metrics that are associated with it. And some of which are, you know, how is this helping our call center agents to spend more time on some of the more complex use cases that they get calls about and maybe spend less time on things that Eno could handle, right? There are metrics that are about value in that way. Um, more than there are metrics about like, how many conversations did Eno have? You know, that's not important to us, but How many times did somebody have to rephrase a question before Eno got it right? That is important to us because that tells us whether or not we're understanding and serving the customer better. So we have metrics like that. And then we have a couple that are the I love you and the, I, and the thank you metrics, which are when we've really nailed it and there's this emotional outcome that comes from that, it shows up in language very specifically like that. And I'll tell you, those are fun stories to the headlines as you saw you know around our decision for you know being gender neutral around our decision to use emojis in banking which again could be considered a little more informal um, these were the kinds of decisions that we made very specifically and through testing and also are the kinds of things that generate headlines which are measurable by the company mm-hmm. yeah i think that's uh that's interesting like you say you need the numbers to convince some people but yesterday there was also john powell from uh, hypergiant and he talked about that service designers um actually uh they grew too much towards business and proving like when i reduce this friction uh you will earn more money but that we Uh, we kind of stopped asking the critical ethical uh, questions. And yeah. that is also really our job, not just to please in a certain project, but that, right. and that companies also value uh, this, this point of view. And of course, you have to look for the right moments to introduce it and right. first gain trust that your projects that you have been doing uh, were of value to a company, but that we should also um, make clear to the companies that we don't have to prove everything in numbers yeah. if indeed what you say if the story is right and people will believe the story that that could also bring us even yeah, yeah. more forward that's sure we can measure it we could prove it why do you want to do this what's the value what is the thing that we are trying to achieve together do you believe in that if so let's just do it mm-hmm. that sense of urgency and earnesty that makes something like the Fogo Island Inn or Sesame Street or Journey come to fruition when there are only obstacles in the way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen because somebody proved it first. It mm-hmm. happened because people were willing to connect with one another and make something real. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of the questions we are also getting now uh, from big organizations is like, 
what are the strategic uh, directions we have to go in and where should we go for? And then it's very tough to answer those, uh, yeah. those questions. And, yeah. and they ask uh, designers uh, to help them with that. And I have to be honest, we don't know yet how we <laughs> should do that. And sometimes we, we gain some trust and we see like, okay, they believe what we uh, did in the user research and now we can... Uh, say that this project is more important than the other that would might bring them more money. But I feel that that is one of like the big challenges that uh, service designers are still facing. But, uh, but I think you gave a great uh, example uh, of that. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> even in a bank. In your gut and say, <laughs> no numbers, we're doing this. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm, uh, could you talk a bit about the, the overall design context at Capital One? Uh, uh, how big is the team you work in? Are there different kinds of teams per project? Is there, do people cross teams? How sure, does that work? Yeah. So we're, um, uh, yeah, we've got about a, a centrally organized team, about 500 designers spanning the entire business with embedded specialties within each team. And the teams are really aligned to the different parts of the business that are customer facing. And in my team, uh, team's example, it's internal facing. So all of the associates who work at Capital One are my customer so that we can build adaptive systems for them. And uh, in doing so, really enable them to better serve our customers down the line. So um, we've got content strategists and researchers and service designers and um UX, UI designers, you name the discipline, they're throughout the, the team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's a challenge to uh, keep designers in such a large organization. It's something we heard also a lot that uh, designers like to work in an agency, but then they actually want to have more long-term impact. So they move to a company, but then the culture is like so different that they, oh, yeah. uh, they move out again. How do you... I mean, I... Exactly. I was working for myself for five years and I uh, had worked in agencies before that too, but it's, I mean, to each his or her own, right? The, um, it's very easy to stand on the outside of particular companies and go, that's broken. And it's uh, not as easy to go in and to also very specifically be a scholar of that business for a while to understand why these decisions were made because they're not bad people who are making these decisions. They, they've understood the implications over a long period of time. And now you have an opportunity to come in and not you know, try to hack it up, but to understand it, figure out what's the underlying motivation and the intention, and to design something that can move the business forward, which necessarily, by the way, takes time, doesn't have a start and stop, is always happening at the pace of change, which depending upon your organization might be fast or slow. And people have a tough time adapting to that. I certainly had a tough time adapting to that early on. But in teams where you're, we, for example, have a weekly meetup, it's called What's Up Thursday, and we do design critique together over VC, and that's mm -hmm. like, you know, 500 people coming together over video conference. Uh, we have an annual lip sync battle, which is pretty... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty rough, I've got to tell you. Like we're we've got some really creative people, and they go for it. And uh, Jamin won actually. Jamin, who uh, is a service design conference uh, organizer, uh, I get one time. So got to get him to show his yeah, skills. Yeah, talk, talk to him about that. Um, anyway, being able to infuse some of the the personality throughout the team and committed to the, the community helps to create a great de design dynamic. Mm -hmm. All right. 
Well, it was uh, great to have uh, the opportunity to uh, talk to you uh, and thank also you. to uh, to be there for your talk. Uh, very inspiring. So yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank um, you. Where will people uh, be able to uh, reach out to you if they want find to find out more? Twitter, Steph underscore Hay. All right. Thanks. Excellent. All right. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen C featuring I Will I Swear. Until next time.